Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this lecture, which took place on October 27, 2014, as part of the Works in Progress series at the National Gallery of Art, Molly Kunstner and Thomas O'Callaghan discussed the gallery's partial set of historic slides from the Führer Project, an official Nazi archive produced by order of Adolf Hitler. In December 1943, at the height of World War II, Hitler issued the Führerauftrag Monument Malerei, Führer's Order for Monumental Painting, ordering the Reich Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda to administer a photographic survey of immovable murals threatened by Allied bombing. The survey is significant because by the end of the war, 60% of the photographed sites had been damaged or destroyed. Kunstner and O'Callaghan also highlight the partial set of 4,500 Führer Project slides that came to the gallery in 1950 by way of publisher Kurt Wolf. First of all, I would like to acknowledge Anne Ritchie of Gallery Archives and Deborah Wynn and Brett Carnell of the Library of Congress for their extraordinary assistance with this project. Warm thanks go out also to our colleagues in the Department of Image Collections. The images you are about to see are from our department, unless otherwise noted. As preface, I take in hand a short history of the Department of Image Collections. We are the National Gallery of Art Study and Research Center for Images of Western Art and Architecture, with almost 14 million photographs, slides, negatives, microforms, and digital images. The department serves the gallery staff, members of the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts, visiting scholars, and qualified researchers. The photographic archives component was established in 1970 with the previously donated archive of photographs and clippings of art compiled by the collector George M. Richter at its core. The slide library, established in 1941, merged with the photographic archives in 2004 to become a single resource with Gregory Most as the head of the department. Molly Kunstner and I would like to acknowledge Gregory for originating and supporting the research project that is the subject of our talk today. It involves our study of a mysterious German slide set in a storage vault of our department without much identification or an historic paper trail in museum files. I took on the task of inventorying the contents of this slide set, and Molly and I created an online feature about it for the gallery's website. We all suspected that these mystery slides were somehow related to the Second World War and the loss of cultural patrimony. After many false starts and blind alleys in our attempts here at the museum to find a receiving report or a paper trail that would identify the slide set, Molly and I were delighted with a lucky break that came last summer during a trip to the Library of Congress. There, staff of the Prints and Photographs Division definitively revealed to us the true source of our slides and provided us with a golden paper trail. 
The information we received from the Library of Congress identified our slides as a partial set of an official Nazi image archive created at the height of World War II, known as the Führer Project, or as the Farbdia Archiv zur Wand und Decken Malerei. A complete set of 39,000 slides is in the Central Institute for Kunstgeschichte in Munich, and it has been fully digitized since 2005. By 1943, three years of wholesale and indiscriminate bombing of population centers by all sides of the conflict was intensifying. After the horrendous bombing of British cities by Germany in 1940 to 1941, the British began their strategy in 1942 of dropping blockbuster bombs followed by fire bombs on densely populated residential districts in German cities, including city centers. In March 1942, 234 aircraft bombed the ancient timber structures of the Hanseatic port of Lübeck, burning and destroying most of the city center. The first of the thousand bomber raids occurred in May 1942, when 1,046 British aircraft dropped over 2,000 tons of high explosives and incendiaries on the medieval town of Cologne, and the resulting fires burned it from end to end. The next year, the U.S. Air Force joined the British effort with its Flying Fortress bombers and advanced bomb sighting technology and together the Allies destroyed countless targets in Germany for the remainder of the war. It was obvious to the German government that their population and cultural patrimony were in serious jeopardy. In response to the threat posed by the Allied bombing, in December 1943, Hitler issued the Führer Malerei. <clears throat> ordering the Reich Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda to implement and administer a photographic survey. The resulting images were meant to serve as archetypes from which to reconstruct war-damaged artworks after the anticipated Nazi final victory. The ministry officials began by compiling lists of historic buildings within the Third Reich, which they deemed to be culturally valuable and worth preserving, and ranked the sites in order of importance, starting with those most threatened by potential Allied incursions. They then hired and trained photographers and equipped them with guidelines, cameras, lenses, film, and lighting devices, in some cases military searchlights for oversized ceiling frescoes, and arranged for scaffold construction and ground transportation. The ministry anticipated that the program would produce a large volume of images and so, for efficiency, used Agfacolor Noi, a pioneering color slide film developed by the German color 
German company, Agfa, in 1936 that reduced processing from 27 to 5 steps. At the time, the documentation program was considered prestigious and positions were highly desirable because they offered a degree of economic security and physical safety. The photographers came from a wide swath of German society. University professors, students, and prominent art historians, photojournalists, chemists, and professionals from motion picture studios such as Rex Film and UFA. By April 1945, 300 survey photographers had documented the immovable paintings and wall treatments in 480 buildings dating from the 10th to the 19th centuries in Germany, Austria, Poland, and Russia. The campaign continued until the defeat of the Third Reich, although many of the photographers by then could barely cover their expenses, and 60% of the sites they photographed had been bombed. An important goal of the Fuhrer project was to stimulate the German wartime economy by creating jobs for civilians and to promote the products of the Agfa company. Joseph Goebbels and his propaganda ministry saw Agfa color slide and movie films as a catalyst of Nazi industry and as Germany's answer to American dominance with its Kodachrome and Technicolor technologies. Despite poor documentation of some sites due to war conditions and the loss of many slides in the chaos that followed the end of the war, the Fuhrer Project archive remains an invaluable resource for images, images of historic wall and ceiling paintings in Central Europe. Above all else, it is the documenting of the mural paintings that have disappeared forever that makes the Fuhrer Project images so compelling. Molly Kunstner will now present a selection from the gallery's partial Fuhrer Project set, beginning with patrimony photographed in Berlin. We will begin in Berlin, the cultural epicenter of Germany, known for its museum island and princely palaces, which from 1943 to 45 was the headquarters for the Fuhrer project. Since the 15th century, Berlin served as the capital of Germany, but was irrevocably changed by the air raids that took place during World War II, when much of its, much of its cultural patrimony was destroyed or severely damaged. The Ordens Palace on the Wilhelmplatz was erected in 1737 as a residence and was later remodeled by Karl Friedrich Schinkel. It was unoccupied after World War I until the German government claimed it as their press office. And by 1933, it became the Nazi headquarters of Joseph Goebbels' Reich's Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, the agency charged with administering this image survey. 
The neoclassical exterior with modest embellishment belies the polychromatic interiors replete with frescoes and ornate decoration as seen in this antique cycle. Schinkel's classically inspired frescoes in the throne room were skillfully captured by the photographer. From an elevated vantage point, perhaps from a platform such as this, allowing him or her to focus not only on the frescoes, but also on the cornice and dentil molding. Inspired by ancient wall paintings, Schinkel adorns the Pompeii room with mythological motifs, and in this case, the rape of Europa, very appropriately. These images convey the stately origins of the building as a residential palace occupied by counts and princes, and the masterful interior paintings are brought to, to life through the new photographic technologies. The Agfa film captures Schinkel's palette and his delineation of figures in the Pompeian room's mythological cycle, more brilliantly perhaps than with other products. In 1947, Walter Severin, a book dealer and father of a survey photographer, describes the survey's Agfa color film as superior, registering color values, values more sharply than Kodak color film. The propaganda ministry, which is here again on the right, um, was destroyed in February 1945 at the end of the war, and it is noteworthy to mention that it was difficult to find a photograph of the exterior. I was fortunate to locate an individual who was selling her father's image collection, which he acquired while on tour as a USGI at the end of the war. He was assigned to Berlin's Wilhelm plots, which included the propaganda ministry, this is the Reich's chancellery, um, and Hitler's bunker. Museums were also a significant part of this survey and included the Altus Museum, which originally housed the Prussian royal family's art collection. Schinkel was responsible for both the architectural plans and a series of painted frescoes, in addition to those designed by Bernard Rosendahl. You can see the frescoes in situ in the upper vestibule with its surrounding molding and weathered surface, serving as important documentation of their existence as they were destroyed. Schinkel's The Cycle of Human Life, Men Bringing Ram and Offerings to the Altar, was described in the 1893 Baedeckers Northern Germany edition as the struggle of mankind against barbarians and the elements. And certainly the photographer captures not only this central narrative, but also its condition with faded pigment and loss. The shots of the Altus Museum make manifest the lighting techniques that were employed to photograph these large-scale subjects, such as the scenes after Etruscan wall paintings. It is apparent that there is a ra rather bright light source flooding the wall, and the variety of patterns and motifs are effectively illuminated. Here is an example of a survey photographer behind his camera, projecting a floodlight onto the walls while precariously straddling a ladder and a crate. Although this is not the Altus Museum, it gives you a sense of the photographer's equipment and the methods used to capture the paintings. Most of these frescoes were destroyed when a truck exploded outside of the museum in 1945, marring sections of the facade. <clears throat> now we will go to the Berlin Stadtschloss. By the time it was photographed for the Führer project, Berlin's royal palace was no longer a royal residence, but rather a decorative arts museum. In November 1918, two days before the end of World War I, 
the German Socialist Republic was declared from one of its balconies, ending more than 400 years of royal occupation. In February 1945, it was struck twice by Allied bombs. The first strike blew off its roof, and the incendiary bombs that followed left it a burnt-out shell. Although still possible to repair at great expense, with much of its interior decorations still intact, the East German Democratic Republic dynamited and raised it in 1951. These two images from the Fuhrer Project slides are of the Knights Hall, one of four throne rooms in the massive palace. They demonstrate Agfa Film's chromatic prowess in capturing, with dazzling effects, the opulent throne canopy, the gilded decorations, and the majesty of the late Baroque ceiling painting by Johann Friedrich Wenzel, which is up here. Of special interest is the silver balcony. Above one of the doorways, presumably for musicians to provide unobtrusive musical accompaniment for state occasions. Here is an overall shot of the throne room as it was in the 19th century. And you can see, whoop, and that's the uh, silver balcony. Next, we will move on to Ludwigsburg in the state of Baden Wurttemberg. The Schloss Ludwigsburg is one of Germany's largest Baroque palaces and is noted for its ceiling frescoes. Here, the Fuhrer project documents the renovated Rococo Middle Courtyard disguised in camouflage to protect it from air raids. There is a general sense of anticipation that pervades this scene, with both the fate of the palace and the city hanging in the balance. However, there is no reminder of the looming war on the interior where the only drama that is conveyed is that of the Baroque. From an almost dizzying perspective, this picture is taken from a lower vantage point in the west wing, perhaps from a constructed platform looking up to the open expanse of Scotty's painted heavens. These images capture details that are not perceptible to the naked eye and had not been widely documented. There is an account from 1947 which discusses the survey photographer's methods and, how, and describes how, in another palace, the photographer was able to capture ceiling frescoes that had remained visibly, visibly inaccessible for years. Quote, the close-ups and details taken in the course of the project gave rise to a number of revaluations. When my son put floodlights in the staircase of the Schloss, the employees who had been there for more than 40 years saw for the first time the ceiling paintings. This keen attention to perspective and lighting yielded precise images which, as far as we can tell, had not been readily available. The frescoes, including this, Columbo's Apollo with the Muses, were spared, as was the palace, although the city of Ludwigsburg did incur war damage. The survey also covered small provincial towns that included ecclesiastical structures, such as Blauburn and its abbey. Here is the bathhouse built around 1510 in the traditional Fachwerk style. And you have here the, um, the post and the beams, and then the white here is the infill and take note of this painted beam up here on the ceiling. You can clearly see the construction technique 
materials and wall painting illusionistic, illusionistic arbor with hunting scenes by Struve. And in other frames from the series, the detailed German hunting motifs, like this young buck interspersed amongst the climbing tendrils. The ceiling beams with a painted cycle dedicated to patron Saint John the Baptist were also documented at what appears to be close range, revealing the patterning of the wood on the thinly painted beam. The abbey was not damaged during the war, but these photos serve as an important record of the painting's condition. Helga Schmidt-Glasner was responsible for shooting this site in 1944 at a time when the seminarians had been withdrawn from the abbey. She did not have the unique distinction of being the only female in the rank of photographers, as approximately one in four of the photographers were, was a woman, but she did make significant contributions in both the quality and volume of images she produced. A substantial portion of the slides in our partial set are attributed to Helga. The noble Potsdamstadtschloss served as the winter palace to the electors of Brandenburg, kings of Prussia, and German emperors. It was not only impressive in scale, but also in its extensive ornamentation. With great precision, the survey documents the ornamental program, including stucco work and molding, frescoes, large history paintings, gilding, chandeliers, and chinoiserie. The Grand Marble Hall was a masterpiece with high ceilings which showcased Van Loo's large mythological ceiling painting, as well as the highly developed stucco work and immense chandeliers. Here the photographer clearly positions the camera at an angle where he is able to capture all of these important elements in the frame without diminishing the figures central to the painting's narrative or the stucco motifs. A number of survey images focus solely on Schluter's sculptural stucco work, which projects prominently from the walls and ceiling. Images of the concert room also demonstrate the photographer's attention to distinct ornamental design. The bright spotlight cast on the wall and ceiling illuminates the omnipresent gilt scrolls and floral motifs that are crowned by radiant sunbeams. At closer range, he shoots the chinoiserie murals that are set into panels and surrounded by elaborate gilt patterning. From these photos, the viewer is given a real sense of the rich materiality of the palace. We had an unexpected subject appear in a mirror in the writing cabinet. Upon closer inspection of this apparition, it was evident that there was a man's reflection in a mirror above the doorway. If you look closely, his head is right here, and his camera is here. And this is all covering, which I'll explain in a moment. This is the overall view here. So you see him reflected in the mirror. His head is visible and probably cocked to the side to frame the picture he is engaged in taking. And his camera is positioned next to his head. His body is obscured behind a cloth that is draped in the doorway to disguise his presence in the photo. He is either standing on a ladder or crates such as these to capture the mirror and ornament. Although this has not been documented elsewhere, we were able to identify the man as one of the survey photographers, Peter Curlis, who was about 19 when this was taken. He photographed the palace in 1943 and after the war became highly regarded for his photos of Berlin architecture, which were published in a number of books on the subject. Peter's role is undoubtedly a result of his father's involvement in the survey. His father, Dr. Curlis, was head of the survey's film production. Quote, 
the person in charge is a Dr. F. Curlis, Berlin, art historian and partner of an institute for documentary movies. He was not a member of the Nazi party. At the time of the project, the Ministry of Propaganda assigned to him the supervision of the production of the color films in Germany and Austria. Dr. Curlis had an overall view of the achievements of the enterprise, end quote. We assume that Dr. Curlis arranged for his son's employment in an effort to keep him from being enlisted in the military, which would have put his life at far greater risk. Peter Curlis survived the war, but the Potsdam Stadtschloss was destroyed in April 1945 and is still under reconstruction. <clears throat> Würzburg Residence. The residence of the former bishops of Würzburg is the most magnificent of German Baroque palaces. The palace had a great variety of sumptuously decorated interiors and halls. The mirror hall was noteworthy for its sophisticated design and the interplay between its rokai ornament and its reverse glass paintings. The mirror hall was completely destroyed by the fire ignited by an Allied air raid that burned out most of the residence in 1945. However, the residence's most outstanding feature was the enormous staircase by Balthasar Neumann, crowned by Tiepolo's ceiling fresco of 1752-1753. In Tiepolo's fresco, the allegorical figure representing painting indicates with her brush that Würzburg is the cultural center of Europe. Tiepolo and his son Domenico in a white wig look on from the far left. The fresco by Tiepolo covers an area of 59 by 98 feet on the unsupported stone vault ceiling, an architectural feat for its time. The stone ceiling protected Tiepolo's masterpiece from the fire in the roof and attic above, ignited in the airstrike of 1945. This is the vault with the fresco. And these are the attics that burned in 1945. John Davis Skilton was curator in charge of the masterpieces evacuated from the National Gallery of Art to Biltmore House in North Carolina in 1942, and later as an MFAA, MFAA officer ingeniously organized the construction of a temporary roof above the Tiepolo fresco, saving it from seeping rainwater. Let's see. This is the crawl space between the vault with the fresco on it and the roof above it. And you can see this would be a, have been the roof that Skilton produced a temporary 
replacement for after it was bombed. Skilton performed this work as a lieutenant in the Museum, Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives program, which was established in 1943 and administered by the Civil Affairs and Military Government sections of the Allied Armies to protect cultural property in war areas during and after World War II. After the war, Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives officers continued their work protecting and assessing damage to cultural patrimony. Architect, writer, and photographer John Henry Scarf, Harry, as he's referred to by his friends and colleagues, including those at the National Gallery of Art, was sent to Berlin by the MFAA program as a monuments officer to survey and report on war damage. After leaving his post in London, Harry reached Berlin on December 3, 1945, and was charged with documenting the condition of its, quote, wrecked museums. In his words, I have been assigned the congenial task of planning for the reconstitution of the German museums in the American zone. He took this photo of the Altus Museum's exterior and the damage around Wolf's illustrious lion fighter in the spring of 1946 and describes the project as a depressing affair. Quote, I cannot become used to destruction. In Berlin, it is appalling because of its extent. Miles and miles of ruins. I am told what I have seen here is what one finds all over Germany, except for one or two places. He also described how the Allies made a concerted effort to reach sites which could be looted or destroyed. Quote, the following is common knowledge in Berlin and will be of interest to you. The Russians are continuing to move art objects from the Russian sector. I wrote you of the removal of the 900 paintings from the Kaiser Friedrich Museum. They are now removing the Greek marbles. To do so, they made a hole in the floor above the room in which the marbles were stored in order to lift the objects through. It was entirely unnecessary and also deprived the museum officials of another room which they cannot afford. What makes the removal so particularly distressing is that they are being taken without understanding or care. The Allied forces labor to protect remaining patrimony as well as archival records, but unfortunately did not recover any Fuhrer project slides, as most were either lost during firebombing or burned by the Russians after the war. <clears throat> the gallery's fragmentary set of slides from the Fuhrer project were obtained in post-World War II Germany by the editor and publisher Kurt Wolf one of the most extraordinary personalities of German and American publishing of the 20th century. After a brilliant career in pre-Nazi Germany, Wolf and his wife immigrated to New York in 1941 and established Pantheon Books, which became famous. He became a naturalized citizen in 1946. In early 1947, Kurt Wolff began corresponding with Germans in Berlin and Marburg to learn about the fate of the slides made for the Fuhrer project. From the correspondence, which is preserved in the Library of Congress, Wolff learned that Hitler himself was to receive one set of the slides for the Reich Chancellery in Berlin, while other sets were to go to the state government offices 
for the protection of national monuments and fine arts of the various lender states. More importantly, he learned that the photographers themselves still had extra original slides, which they had kept clandestinely. Though instructed to take only five or six slides of each shot, the photographers had often taken ten or more. Wolf became convinced that a reasonably complete set of photography could be assembled and put in safekeeping before damage or, or, or irretrievable loss could befall them in the chaotic conditions of post-war Europe. Encouraged by Huntington Cairns, the Secretary Treasurer and General Counsel of the National Gallery of Art, Wolf approached Luther Evans, the Librarian of Congress, in the winter of 1948 to seek his support for a rescue mission. Wolf wrote, quote, In my opinion, such a project far exceeds in importance a mere business proposition. Its cultural implications seem to justify a request for assistance from the Allied authorities in tracing, bringing together, and preserving from further loss photographs of such exceptional quality and significance, all the more as they show, to a large extent, objects definitely destroyed and lost to posterity. End quote. Over the course of the next few months, Luther Evans and Huntington Cairns corresponded with officials at the U.S. Department of Defense to arrange a permit for Kurt Wolf as a representative of the Library of Congress to travel through Germany and Austria. Evans wrote them that if Wolf was successful in acquiring a set of the slides and photographs from the Fuhrer Project, Evans would possibly purchase the slides for the research collections of the Library of Congress. But the Department of the Army was unwilling to officially sponsor the proposed mission. They were willing to issue Wolf an entry pass as a private citizen with which he would be able to conduct business. On May 6, Wolf hurried to Washington to collect his commercial pass and left a week later to travel to the Allied-occupied zones of Germany and Austria. Despite much discussion beforehand, he had not reached a financial agreement with the Library of Congress regarding what he would be paid to acquire photographic material. When he returned to New York at the end of June, Wolf had good news for Evans and Huntington Cairns. In a letter dated late July 1948, he reported that he had followed their advice and learned as much as possible about the Fuhrer project, located the photographic material, and secured slide samples. He brought back with him a small collection of color slides and photos for them to examine and arranged for the bulk of the material to be shipped back in September. His trip had been a complete success, but exactly where he traveled and who he contacted remains unknown. What we do know is that the Library of Congress spent the next two years verifying that Wolf had not violated any of the post-war regulations governing the U.S.-controlled zones of Germany 
or the conduct of commercial relations with German nationals. By early June 1950, Paul Vanderbilt of the Prints and Photographs Division of the Library, in his official report to the Library's Assistant Director for Acquisitions, writes that he had had lunch with Kurt Wolf in New York on June 8th and would be bringing the whole collection of slides to Washington in his own car on June 21st. The slides were subsequently loaned to the National Gallery of Art. The Fuhrer project was unique in its scope, technical precision, and development processes, all of which made locating the slides in the post-war period a significant and worthy endeavor. In a 1947 letter to Wolf, a well-informed and reliable German source makes a compelling case in the hunt for the slides. Quote, One complete set of the color photographs were stored in the shelter of the Chancellery of Reich, Hitler's bunker, which was proof of their importance of the collection. A second set was put in safekeeping in the studio of the sculptor Barlach. The photographs in the Reich's Chancellery shelter have disappeared and supposedly were destroyed by the Russian army during the conquest of Berlin. There are, however, other depositories. The person who is in charge of the whole project believes that it would be possible to assemble from these and other depositories in the western zones an approximately complete set. These photographs, once assembled, would constitute inestimable inestimable material for a series of publications of unique importance. No private publisher or scholar could ever have brought together such a wealth of first-rate photographic material taken in optimum conditions of lighting and accessibility, regardless of expense. The recovery of remaining slides years later by Wolf through his contacts was undoubtedly a coup, for they are an invaluable record of destroyed artworks and serve as documentation of their existence. The survey also underscores the irony of the Nazis' actions, for while they were looting European art, they were simultaneously trying to preserve the memory of their own patrimony. Although this lecture has focused on the loss of cultural patrimony, we want to recognize and emphasize that the loss of life and livelihood that occurred as a result of the war remains of utmost significance. These images are one of many reminders of the destructive nature of war and the impact it has on human civilization. Monuments officer Ernest DeWald eloquently offers these concluding sentiments in his book, Lost Treasures of Europe. The loss or destruction of these prized heritages of the past becomes, in fact, a personal personal loss comparable to that of a friend. Nor is it merely the material object that is gone, but all the values of human endeavor and beauty transmitted by them, which must henceforth be kept alive by the ghostly image in the memory or by the record of a photograph, both of which fade out with time. The spectacle of man's destructive fury against himself and his achievements lies spread before us. Thank you. I think there's a letter that Tom and I came across, and a lot of this is piecing different parts of the puzzle together, but we believe the letter mentions that, did it say a complete set or a set of the slides, went by truck, and it went to um, 
eventually outside of Stuttgart. Um, I think it was stored in a castle and then ended up in Stuttgart. So we think it probably um, went then from wherever it was stored there to eventually to Munich to be preserved. I would just like to add that it was a very complex process that lasted 50 years uh, from the end of the war until uh, the beginning of this century and that it was piecemeal. Uh, many of the uh, slides were deposited in state government archives. Some, the core set was the Hitler uh, chancellery set. But uh, it was both the University of Marburg and um, the Kunstgeschichte uh, Institute in Munich, both working together that compiled them over time. And in some cases, the photographers themselves were also involved, um, uh, trading their slides for the ones they had in order they could both um, improve their own collections. So it was a piecemeal and laborious project process. Uh, maybe you said, but how many slides or images do you have here? And I noted you said these are on loan from the Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, do they have to go back, or do we get to keep them? <laughs> We have uh, 4,000 here, so a little over 10%, I guess about 12% of the total set. Um, the total set is 39,000, and they're here in perpetuity. Um, probably, I would assume, partially in homage to the work of the MFAA and the gallery's role in that project, and I think they thought they could best be utilized here. Yes. Did any of the photographers emigrate to the U.S.? I don't know. We know that, was it Helga was in Stuttgart? Helga was in Stuttgart. Peter remained in Berlin. We have note in um, the quote that I mentioned at the end, Lost Treasures of Europe. In the preface to that book, the book was produced by Wolf. Wolf was the publisher who acquired the slides through his contacts, that he had contact with a German photographer who had ended up in New York. So we don't know if it's one of the photographers from this project or just a photographer. So, yep. Um, you noted that a set is, was in Hitler's bunker. Do you have any information what he thought of it other than obviously it must have been important to him? And did he ever write about it? Or do you have any anecdotal information on what he might have said about it? Or, I mean, personally, <clears throat> not just in Sure. Uh, we came upon this wonderful book that is, uh, was published by the Kunstgeschichte uh, Institute in Munich uh, in around 2004 at the time of the digitization of all their slides. And there was a symposium there, and all the people involved came together, and their findings and their talks are preserved in German in this book. But it's full of documentation of the Führerauftrag, which was uh, the mandate at the beginning. And so your answer may be your, the, the answer to your question may be found in here, but I can't give you any uh, personal anecdotes about uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, responses. We think they they do mention in one of the letters that they thought that there were slides that were burned that had been burned when the Russians went in and scattered maybe on the bottom at the on the floor of the bunker um, but we it as I mentioned that the fact that they're there um, signifies their importance yeah to be preserved for posterity 
Is there something else, that you, another step to your research or investigation of this? Um, it's TBD, to be determined. <laughs> there's a lot more out there, and there's so many archives that we'd have to visit and, and um, documents to consult, but we certainly would like to find out more. Is there anything that you're especially excited about? Or um, well, what excited me was uh, Kurt Wolf, mm -hmm. which wasn't related to, directly to these slides, but... He was really a, an incredible personage, and he um, published some incredible art books and books by rising and unknown uh, writers in Germany, like uh, he discovered Franz Kafka for the first time and published his works, and later uh, his company published Gunter Grass and his Tin Drum uh, back in the, in the 50s. And he published uh, a tr an English translation of Dr. Zhivago by Pasternak in English that sold in the millions from the New York Publishing House. So that definitely interests me. And he escaped Europe as well. So yeah. He was half, half Jewish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> this has been the National Gallery of Art podcast. 